Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello, everybody. How are you? Welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I am Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. My guest today is Jenny Shia, author of the debut novel, Holding Pattern. Up until I went to kindergarten, like my first day of kindergarten, I only spoke Mandarin, and so being thrown into this new environment, I really felt like I had to like understand the language. I mean, I had to understand the language just to understand what was going on. And that became like really, I became really hungry for language. So I read a lot, I wrote a lot, I felt imperative. And then I think in like trying to keep up or like trying to be American or whatever it was, then I realized like, oh, this is really cool and really fun and I love not just like the practical aspects of this, but like how transportive it is. Okay, that was Jenny Shia. Her debut novel, Holding Pattern, is available now from Riverhead. And it is a novel, to me, that feels very much like a novel about being in one's 20s. Holding Pattern is about a young woman named Kathleen who returns home after going through a difficult breakup. She has sort of blown up her life. She dropped out of graduate school or might have dropped out of graduate school. It's sort of undecided. And she has left everything from her previous existence behind on the East Coast. And she has returned home to Oakland. And this novel tracks what happens to her during this time as she moves back in with her mother, and tries to sort herself out. And as a complicating factor, her mother is getting remarried. They have a difficult but loving relationship, and her mother, who has struggled with drinking in the past but has sobered up, is now getting remarried to a Silicon Valley tech entrepreneur. And so Kathleen, who is in her 20s and is reeling from a breakup, has to help her mother plan a wedding. And along the way, Kathleen takes a job at a startup that specializes in, I guess you could call it touch therapy. 
she becomes a professional cuddler, which really is a thing. And over the course of holding pattern, Kathleen comes to some new understandings about herself, her mother, her future, about intimacy and connection, what she wants from life, both personally and professionally. This is a very warm, insightful novel. It is often funny. It is heartbreaking at times. It's a novel about immigration and belonging and relationships, mother-daughter relationships in particular. I had a great time meeting Jenny Shia, and that conversation is coming up momentarily. Before we get started, a quick reminder about my weekly email newsletter. I do an email newsletter. It is free. You can sign up at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. It's pretty straightforward. I will let you know about the latest episodes of the show, and I will also share links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So I would love it if you would sign up for my newsletter. Along with that, a reminder that the Other People podcast is listener-supported. If you like this show, if you listen regularly, you can support the show over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. It is a sliding scale. You can get stuff, t-shirt, coffee mug, and so on and so forth. So please support the show if you are so inclined over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. So my guest today, once again, is Jenny Shia. Her debut novel, Holding Pattern, is available now from Riverside. Jenny Shia received her MFA in creative writing at Johns Hopkins University. Her work has appeared in a variety of publications, including Ninth Letter, Joyland, Narrative, and the Best of the Net Anthology. She is one of the National Book Foundation's five under 35 honorees, she is the recipient of a Breadloaf Scholarship and fellowships from McDowell, Yaddo, and the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. Jenny Shia is a contributing writer for Architectural Digest, Apartment Therapy, and Dwell, where she was the executive editor. It was really great to talk with Jenny Shia. I loved it, and I'm very excited to catch her as she makes this fine debut and happy to share our conversation with you right now. So here she is, folks. This is Jenny Shia, and her debut novel, One More Time, is called Holding Pattern. I was born in Shanghai, and my parents came here when they were 26, and I was eight months old. I was like less than a year old. And came to the California? Came to California, yeah. We first landed in LA, in Inglewood, and then we sort of like moved around the suburb San Gabriel Valley. And then when I was seven, we ended up in Irvine. And that's where I was until, until college. Okay. So what brought them from Shanghai? Your, like, what brought your parents from Shanghai to California? I think just community. There were some people who were here. That it was, you know, kind of like out of the cultural revolution, post Mao China and everyone was sort of leaving if they had the chance. And I don't remember the specifics now, but I think my dad could like pull a couple strings and he came here, well, more specific, well, more generally to, to, to immigrate, but also because he was coming here for a computer science uh, MA. Okay, so you are then raised mostly in Orange County. 
Mostly in Orange County. Yeah. How was or that? L- yeah, LA and Orange County. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, so you know, it's a master plan city uh, owned by a owned by a developer. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I have things to say about this as somebody who lives in Los Angeles, which is not master planned. <laughs> um, yes. You know, like there's something about Irvine that's a little bit creepy because it's so like sanitized and planned and organized and manicured. And yet there's, I mean, coming from the chaos of Los Angeles, I often find myself appreciating it. I'm like, look at these bike paths. Look at these trees. <laughs> you know, like it's, yeah, yeah. It's a double-edged sword. I mean, I didn't really know growing up why things felt so hygienic and sanitized. Um, and actually, I'm working on a new manuscript that's based loosely on the Irvine Company, which is the company that now owns, you know, not just Irvine, but they also do like real estate in other places, hospitality. They're like just this big conglomerate now. So I was researching a lot of like how the master planning of Irvine came about. And it was like James Irvine, which was an Irish immigrant family. And this land used to be just like cattle grazing, agriculture. And then it wasn't really incorporated until the University of California wanted to build UCI there. And so they sold the land to the University of California for a dollar and hired a master planner in and yeah, made this whole plan for a city and originally they wanted it to be pendant layout where the university oh sorry they wanted the university to be at the center and all these villages which are essentially neighborhoods like fanning out from it but then something was weird with the terrain um so they made it more of a pendant where you have uci at the bottom of this necklace and then this oval shape where all the neighborhoods radiate out and two man-made lakes at the center so it's like very, very thought out. Yeah, my experience of it was just like every blade of grass was exactly 90 degrees out of the earth. No billboards. Like they have all these rules about how things should look. I think Forbes named it like fourth safest city in America at one point. So it was really, really idyllic, but it was also really, really bleached. Like I didn't realize until I left Irvine and like traveled more that like, oh, not every establishment needs to be a chain like i don't think an independent store exists in irvine i'm like hard pressed to think of one uh, so it's really like growing up in a shopping mall yeah, yeah 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 and it's it's beautiful and like you say it's that's a weird like juxtaposition of characteristics like on the one hand no billboards on the other hand nothing but chain stores <laughs> yeah. uh, you know so it's like they have certain aesthetic things that i'm like oh that's cool and like i like the bike paths and it is pretty to have all these trees here and it is livable but it makes me feel a little creeped out because of mm-hmm. how perfect it is you know or something like right. that it's, so yeah it's like you don't have to think about any other choices because we've already made the best choice for you there's something sinister about that so you grew up like what going to the mall going to the movies that i mean you must have right the irvine what do they call that big movie plex out there the irvine spectrum the irvine spectrum right yes Yes. which has (laughs) only ballooned in the time in my time away i went back to irvine for the first time in like 10 years because my parents now live in san jose recently and i went to the spectrum and it's even bigger you know it's like very faux moroccan architecture giant fountains is there a bookstore you could do a reading at the spectrum it'll be full circle (laughs) i actually don't know if there's a bookstore (laughs) i doubt it 
Yeah, it's it's wild. I went to the Spectrum a lot. I got caught shoplifting at the Urban Outfitters at the Irvine Spectrum. That's in great. Right of right of passage. <laughs> right, you gotta do that. What What did uh, you steal? <laughs> I th- I think I stole like accessories. It was like a belt, maybe, or sunglasses. Things that usually, you know, I had like a little shoplifting spree in high school. And I was like, oh, these things don't have security tags on them the way that like clothes do. Um, So it'd be like, you know, earrings, little things like that from stores like Forever 21 or Urban Outfitters. And yeah, it went off uh, when I when I exited and I was the security alarm. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. It went off. I was with my best friend at the time and she and yeah, I just like try to invoke my rights or something where this manager was like, we need to look inside your bag. And I was like, no. And she was like, well, then we're going to call the the police. And then I was like, okay, you can have my stuff back. Um, Yeah, so I went to the Spectrum. We sat in a lot of parking lots. Like we would just get in the car and just like sit in the car because everything closed at like 9 p.m. Which is another feature of Southern California life. This is not a late night culture in Southern, even in Los Angeles. I mean, I guess if you really want to stay out late, there are probably places you can find. But it's not like New York where it's like 24-7. You can always, you know, like L.A. people go to bed. Yeah, LA people go to bed, but in the Bay, people really go to bed. I was also recently there, and I remember it was like 9 p.m. on a Friday, and I was just in a lift, you know, going from place to place, and there was just like no one on the streets. It might, I mean, the pandemic, I feel like, also did something. But I, I mean, I've moved to New York from Oakland two years ago, so the, the difference is striking. I mean, New York just... It, Truly, like things end at 4 a.m. and then someone's like, okay, let's go to the afters. Right. Or let's get brunch, you know, whatever. Yeah. So I want to talk about your upbringing a little bit more, but in particular as it relates to your book, because I think your book reflects your upbringing and reflects some of the relationships in your family. And, you know, we talked about the fact that your parents brought you here, like you guys all moved here from uh, Shanghai. Mm Mm-hmm. And your mother speaks Mandarin Mm -hmm. and you were assimilated speaking English and you don't speak great Mandarin. I think you say you have like picture book level Mandarin. I think I read somewhere. Yes. So this is interesting to me. And this is also reflected in the book is, you know, Kathleen and her mother, they can communicate. Her mother in the book actually speaks passable English, but it's not... Mm -hmm like super fluent you on the other hand you know speaking picture book mandarin and your mother not speaking english you guys have a language barrier within your own family Hmm. yeah kathleen and marissa are you know that aspect is absolutely based on my own experience and i gave them both a little bit more fluency in each other's respective first main languages just because i wanted them to at least you know that part I didn't want to grapple with as much as like all the other factors of them growing up in different places and having different cultural understandings. But yes, in my own life, I would say, you know, my Mandarin is on the level of I can say I've eaten and I can say uh, I'm going to the park, but I can't really talk about anything complex or adult. So it sort of feels like I'm limited even though I'm like thinking, you know, I'm in my body and I'm in my own intellect. But, you know, when I when I hear myself expressing myself, it sounds like I'm five. And, you know, same same for my mom. And in, in terms of English, 
although I would say she's better than a five-year-old, but it's it's hard for her. And I can tell when, you know, she's trying to speak English with me or with other people that she's struggling. And so there's not just like the level of I can't is say fully what I mean, but even thinking of and attempting to do it is so much labor and it's just exhausting. It's exhausting to do that all the time. And we'll sort of like when we communicate, my mother and I will sort of do a mixture where we're trying to meet each other where we're, where we're at. I try to speak more Mandarin. Um, and so she'll answer in Mandarin. And I think part of that also is just like, this is a language that we don't want to lose completely. So it's a little bit weighted on terms of like her being a little bit more able to express herself. But yeah, it's it's been tough, especially as, as I've gotten older and as I was sort of diverging from the life path that they'd imagined for me. And I started having to really defend myself. Wait, wait, have- wait. What, what, what did they imagine for you? Oh, I mean, I think what they wanted was whatever was available and easiest. So, you know, my specific circumstance of living in California, going to Berkeley, coming out of college right after the Great Recession and during the tech boom, all of their friends who had kids in our same circumstance went into tech or, you know, just did something, you know, almost stereotypically what you think would be a safe career path, um, you know, computer science or law or some sort of something related to STEM. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to, to study English. And then I got my MFA in creative writing. And I didn't really know how that would translate into a financially stable career. But I also couldn't imagine pivoting to do something else. So that was a big point of contention. I I bet. And I feel like it's, I mean, I commend you. It's ballsy. And it's not super typical, I think, for like a first generation child to like break out like that. (laughs) You know, usually because it's like, I've I've talked to people on this show over and over again who have that experience. And there's like such a concern about just being able to make it and survive Mm -hmm. that the safer path is sometimes sort of hewn to because you know it's too scary otherwise but you had the courage to say this is not who i am i'm gonna do an english degree and get my mfa at johns hopkins is that right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so that's a bold choice and they ultimately supported you or at least like they let you do it right i mean <laughs> <laughs> right well it's also like what do you you know i was like very jokingly i used to say to my friends like what are they gonna do fire me like right <laughs> Right. I'm their only child. We're an immigrant family. We've been through, you know, so much to be here together. And, you know, that was also, I think, a part of our dynamic to uh, like the fact that I was an only child. You know, my mom used to say, like, if, you know, if there are other people in the family, like I, you could just go off and do your own thing. But she felt very there's like this like responsibility of of lineage or something of like, you know, like we did all this specifically so just you could prosper and maybe if the, if I had siblings like they could be you know they could hew to that image and then I could be the the weird one but here you are you're the only and you're the weird one so <laughs> it is what it is right yeah it's really funny too because like it, it seems so mundane and like such a trope it, it felt it felt dumb to be like oh I'm fighting against my parents because I'm not doing what they want. 
and I was really frustrated by them and I was like very cruel in my in my like own mental framing with of them I was like oh they're like only obsessed with this one you know metric of success and happiness and they're not really able to see beyond that and it's only as I've grown up and part of the research of writing the book and just getting to understand where they grew up better that I realized that, you know it goes so much deeper than that there's so much trauma from them and you know when they were trying to choose their career and life path it was like you had one test you know how in China you you take one test one time and if you don't make the grade your entire life is effed up and you don't get a second chance so there's this intense pressure and you know how you choose your career what opportunities you get are like totally backdoor like connection that's really unjust or the government will just somehow funnel you into something and you don't really have a choice um yeah and they struggled they struggled with rations and getting food and opportunity so all of that which they didn't really tell me about um you know that was all brewing in their heads and so it took me a long time to understand like their concern comes from yeah well, and also, I mean, there's if there if it, you know if the story in the in the book is similar to the, your own personal story, there are these traumas and circumstances that your parents endured that you maybe didn't know about, but it goes even deeper than that, like the ancestry, like grandparents, like these stories kind of come to you in bits and pieces, right? It's not mm-hmm. like you, it's not like it was all laid out in a book for you. You know, you sort of had to pick this stuff up and it maybe brings the way that your parents raised you and maybe some of the things that they were trying to kind of push you towards. It might, might bring those things into better focus. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, you know, you get little fragments and it's always like an offhand thing. And you're like, wait, what? My yeah. <laughs> great aunt was tarred for being a landlord's daughter and made to sit in the sun until she killed herself like I'm what 30 and I've just learned this it's wild and you know that so wait, is like, wait 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 she was tarred so that means like covered in black tar like she was covered in black tar because she was a landlord's daughter which made her bourgeois and yeah tortured until until she killed herself this is my Jeez. dad's my dad's aunt yeah was that or, something that was common like I've never even heard of that yeah, and you know what's really funny is, well, maybe not funny, but I I put that tidbit in an essay I wrote for The Atlantic about how I wrote this book a little bit as a love letter to my mother, and she won't be able to read it, and talking about all the ways that I've learned about my family in writing the book and learning to love them better or differently. And I put that tidbit in the book, and I also put something that I discovered about my grandma and her affair and my dad was objecting to the the personal story about my grandma and like the thing about the tarring was like very blasé like he felt like it was shocking that I would share something personal about our family like that with the public but like these atrocities where he was like yeah that's very normal and it's like yeah so it's it's just really funny like what is considered I guess what's been desensitized and what still feels very fraught for them to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting how people process stuff. And, you know, that is, I read that piece that you wrote in the Atlantic and there is something very poignant about having written this novel, which is in essence, a love letter 
to your family and to your parents and that your mom can't read it. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't, I guess, unless it gets translated into Mandarin, you got to push for the Mandarin translation (laughs) somehow. (laughs) Part of me is a little scared. It's like, oh, this is going to be very revealing. I I mean, as, as, you know, heartbreaking as it is and how much, you know, how much I would love for them to be able to read it. There is also a layer of like, there's a buffer I was going to say that actually upon further review, maybe it's great that they can't read it. You can just be like, yeah, I can say whatever I want. (laughs) Show them the good reviews, you know, just be like, everything's fine. It's all good, you know, because there is a complication that comes, especially when you're writing a story that's based on personal stuff and you're sort of, you know, using, you're mining your own life and maybe your own family history for the story that you're building. Mm -hmm. There can be complicating issues, you know, with that stuff. It gets into sticky territory and there's just, yeah, there's also a level of visibility that's a still a little bit scary just because our relationship, I'm, I mean, this is probably universal of parent-child relationships, but like there's, you know, an idea of who they are and there's something scary about like all of a sudden ripping that off, especially to your parents of like, this is, here's my raw brain. <laughs> right, right. Especially because again, you know, I think it'd be different if we, you know, communicated on a, on that level our whole lives but like our communication is still very much limited so I, I i think in a sense our understands understandings of each other's whole human beings is necessarily still limited too like i just don't really know maybe even their sense of humor as deeply as other people do or the way they think because there's always that truncation of how do i express this so yeah being if if they we're able to like dive into the book that way be a little bit scary hey everybody if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature i have a book for you it's called truth is the arrow mercy is the bow a diy manual for the construction of stories it is the long-awaited craft book by steve almond based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So interesting to me, this upbringing of yours in Orange County, as an only child of parents with whom there is this language divide and this cultural divide, because... They came here as an as adults. You came here as an eight-month-old. So you're essentially an American, and this is the culture that you know. And your friendships, and, and you're so language-driven. I can tell just by, I mean, obviously you wrote, wrote a book, so you have a, a tendency toward this. But just talking to you, you, you seem like extroverted, and you seem, I don't know, like somebody who's a good hang. You like to talk. You must have had, <laughs> You must have had really tight friendships. If yeah. you couldn't, if you couldn't be at home with a sibling and you couldn't really talk to your folks, 
you had to be talking to somebody is the point. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a dog? <laughs> I did get a dog, but only in senior year. I oh. Yeah. I think, actually, I don't think I had a lot of friends, at least for a good while, until maybe like middle school, high school. Like elementary school, I remember most of my afternoons were like, I would come home from school and like read a whole book. Like I would just like flop on the carpet and just read an entire book and then eat dinner. Or it's like I would play board games against myself. Like I would play chess and I would like really try to beat myself. Um, yeah, but then I don't know, something happened in like middle school or high school. Maybe, I don't know, with social social life just gets to be a little bit more interesting and more sophisticated where, yeah, I really did start finding my people. You're like, bye mom, I'm going to the Irvine Spectrum to I'm... shoplift with my friends. <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yes, well, exactly. You, do you have any, I mean, I know you've sort of got a limited understanding of your ancestry. You've kind of got it in bits and pieces, but... Do you have any sense of where your writerly tendency comes from? Like, is your are either of your parents literary or like good storytellers or anything? Do you have any sense of that, or do you have any sense of maybe aunts, uncles, grandparents, like mm. from whom you might get this gift? I don't know. I don't think so. Um, I know my dad's, and again, it's so funny because like I can't read it, but I know that he'll send these like long missiles through WeChat to people about like what we've been up to. There's sort of, it's like a social media update. And I I get the sense that those are really well written. Um, And so he has like a storytelling bent, but neither of them are really literary, I would say. Um, That was also sort of like stomped out (laughs) during post Mao and like not being able to get books. I remember like they were all contraband. So like they didn't really grow up with that. And I was not really close to my grandparents. But I do think a lot of it has to just come from like assimilation because I say now my Mandarin is really poor, but up until I went to kindergarten, like my first day of kindergarten, I only spoke Mandarin. And so being thrown into this new environment, I really felt like I had to like understand the language. I mean, I had to understand the language just to understand what was going on. And that became like really, I became really hungry for language. Um, so I read a lot. I wrote a lot. I felt imperative. And then I think in like trying to keep up or like trying to be American or whatever it was, then I realized like, oh, this is really cool and really fun. And I love not just like the practical aspects of this, but like how transportive it is. Yeah, that makes some sense. That hunger, you know, for connection and for assimilation and how you might have like an extra drive or something when it comes to language like I guess that's another way that it can happen I'm thinking of uh like Ingrid Rojas Contreras I talked to on this show and English is her second language but she writes beautifully in it and I think came to it relatively late like I mean she grew up in Colombia I want to say I don't know it's just amazing to me is the point yeah that people can like grab onto a language even later in life and like master it like that and then write in it you know it's like i can barely write in it and see my native tongue <laughs> you know so it's uh it's, it's wild i uh i want to ask about something else related to your childhood that i think i read about well i mean it, it shows up in your book but y- you know 
not in a one-for-one one way, but I want to say I, I read in that Atlantic essay maybe that you went to Vegas for Christmas a lot. Mm-hmm. And you noted that there were lots of immigrant families in Las Vegas around Christmas. Mm-hmm. Never occurred to me that this would be the case, but it is. And can you just talk a little bit about that experience as like a kind of an annual tradition? You go to, because I'm, I'm assuming, I don't know, like from Shanghai, you're probably not like Christian in the American sense. You no. don't observe these holidays. So it's sort of like being a Jewish person going out for Chinese food on Christmas, right? Like you're just like, totally. what are we going to do? Yeah, everything's closed. Let's go to Vegas. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, essentially. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was the holidays and, you know, my parents were like, I don't know, a little bit ambivalent about like how much to lean into Christmas. I loved Christmas and I still love Christmas. It just, I don't know what it is. I mean, I don't need to explain why Christmas is fun. I mean, it's just, it's as an, as an aesthetic thing. And also as a kid, it's like, yeah, I want presents and a tree with lights on it in my house. I mean, it's like, it's magical. And so, I mean, they would do things like buy cookies for me to leave out for Santa, but they didn't think through like, oh, we should like eat the cookie. So I would also just come down in the morning, eat the cookie myself. And so it was like, (laughs) I don't know, there was like some logic there that wasn't working, but like it was more about the ritual than the actual magic of it. Anyway, so we were, you know, big on Christmas in some ways, but not in like any sort of like Santa is real or like Christian way it was more just like oh look at this like fun thing that america america does um and it's really like festive and great and so but yeah but we didn't have any family in the states it's just me and my parents so you know and my mom you know is someone who like craves family she always said she wanted eight kids and her idea of you know her life was like you know running around the country with all these like you know, cousins around and aunts and, but that's just like not how it shook out. And so she's always kind of like loved city life too. I mean, especially coming from Shanghai. And so we would find like, you know, the, what's a place that's we could go to. So to, to get out of our dreary three person house for Christmas, um, that's festive and like relatively cheap. And that was Vegas in the nineties and, you know, living in Irvine, it was maybe a four hour drive. And yeah, and so there's like this like very commodified version of Christmas in Vegas where every hotel has a tree and there's all these fake gifts wrapped up and there's like fake Santa standing on the strip sort of like looking haggard and <laughs> it was just like this like weird circus version of Christmas that I loved again because I was a kid and also Vegas in the 90s was very much still family oriented like the had Excalibur um, you had Circus Circus with all the free circus shows on the hour. You had the Mirage with like a lava show. You had Pirates, or sorry, Treasure Island with a pirate show in the front fake moat. So it was like very much like a family, like kid-friendly place in a weird way, even though... Has, that, were... has that changed? Has that yeah. changed? It's a lot sleeker now. It's a lot more like adult playground Um It, it should have always, it should have always yeah. been an adult playground. I mean, like, let's not, let's not mean... Making Vegas into a family place is a little bit absurd. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I loved, I loved it. Um, yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you would see just um, so many Asian families around Christmas time in Vegas. Damn, now I want to go. I, you know, I've actually been, because I don't, I got to say, I liked Vegas when I was like 18, 
19, I'd go on road trips with my friends and we'd be like, this is, you know, cause anything goes that kind of like when you're a certain age, that, that's fun. But now I'm like, ew, what happened in this hotel room? Something bad happened in this hotel room. I don't feel clean. Like, yeah, just, you could just you know, tell. Yeah. It's just like, and then like all the dinging of the slot machines and people losing all their money. I'm just like, this is weird. But yeah, I think my kids would actually get a kick out of it. And I sort of want them to see Vegas. I feel like Vegas is something one should at least see as an American. It is a quintessentially American place, right? It's so American. It's so fun. But then if you like poke at it even a little bit, it's so dark. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's like, yeah, it's just like the the greed and capitalist, you know, impulse, like just on steroids, like taken to its, ex- like its maximal degree, right? It's like, it's like a temple to that impulse. At least the strip is. I know Vegas contains right, more than right. that now. You know, it's become like a, a comp, you know, a complex city. It's not just this strip in the desert anymore, but that's interesting to me. I didn't realize, I, you know, I think I never really, I've thought of Vegas on New Year's as like a place you go to like, mm-hmm. you know, have a big party and ring in the new year, but I have never considered Las Vegas on Christmas. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's also cheaper than too. So like that was an element of like, if you want to go, this is the off season. Maybe I'll take my kids there. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot. There's like, I don't know. Now there's like the Meow Wolf uh, installation out there. Do you know Meow Wolf? What, no. What is that? They're, they're, I think they might be canceled, so I shouldn't be plugging them, but it'd be fun for kids. They do like these immersive art experiences if that makes sense. So they'll, it kind of, the one in Vegas, it looks like a grocery store and you walk in, it looks just like a grocery store, but every product is super weird. And they've like, you know, they've like manufactured all of them. So it's like a cereal box, but it has spiders in it. And like it advertises that on the cereal box. And then you can open a freezer door and there's a tunnel and it takes you to like a whole alien landscape. So it's sort of like combination art experience theme park slash like, Museum of Ice Cream Instagram bait. <laughs> wow, how do you spell this? Why am I not? Why am I not aware of this? It's it's we it's Meow Wolf. I think they started in Santa Fe, uh, right. but I think something. I think there was a scandal with with the creator. He might be bad. <laughs> Can we still but enjoy most, Meow but Wolf? But most people, <laughs> but most people are bad. So most people who are who are in charge of creating the things we consume at some level you know it's coming from someone very rich yeah well i want to talk too about uh professional cuddling i mean you can't talk about this book without talking about this and about the this issue of touch in general i mean the book is called holding pattern and i think the word holding there's a double entendre happening there and mm-hmm. You know, the title holding pattern is referring not only to Kathleen's sense of herself over the course of the story as she's sort of like, should I go back to graduate school? This guy broke up with her. She's not in a relationship. She's trying to sort that out. She's kind of at that place in your in her young adulthood where you're just trying to figure shit out, you know? Mm-hmm. And she ends up cuddling professionally. Like she cuddles people. And I had a conversation about this, I, you know, I think it was Melissa Phoebos. Mm-hmm. Right. And I want to say I talked piece. to her. She had a piece where she went to a cuddle party, right? It was. Yes. She, she was not professional. She wasn't doing it as a professional cuddler. She kind of went to experience what a cuddle party 
is like where you just show up and they're strangers and everybody just cuddles each other uh which i gotta say personally temperamentally i don't think i could do it maybe i could maybe it would surprise me you know i think i'm open i guess but like man that seems (laughs) that seems strange to me and to do it professionally especially as a woman and to have mostly men let's be real right this is Mm -hmm. mostly men coming to cuddle with women professional cuddlers Mm mm-hmm that's usually how it goes down. There's not a lot of women coming to be cuddled, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say of the hundreds of, you know, messages I've gotten, only one has been from a woman. Yeah. And she, you know, disappeared. She ghosted. I don't know what happened. So I've never actually cuddled a woman unless I was paying her to do so, which I did as research at the beginning of the book. And yet, it should be noted that the, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, the overwhelming majority of these cuddle sessions are benign. They're not, like they usually, they can actually be like unexpectedly or strangely moving and, right? I mean, there's Mm -hmm. a real human transfer that happens that's very vital. And I get that. And I think this book feels, as so many books that I'm talking about on this show right now, they feel like they are tinged with our experiences of the pandemic. Like a book that is about touch, you know, that was probably written at least partially in a time in which we were so removed from one another and kind of so starved for contact and commiseration and community. Mm-hmm. Look at how I did that. Three C words all in a row. There like you that. go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of proud of myself. but Beautifully um, done. Yeah, but that's that is like, you know, that's where I think this is coming from now, at least some, in part. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that was, you know, I started writing this in 2015-2016, so far far before the pandemic. But the cuddling aspect definitely grew in its place in the book. It was sort of like a subplot and then, you know, became a central way for Kathleen to think about connection and intimacy and her relationships with people. And so as it was building and beefing up, absolutely that overlapped with with the pandemic and that really dire part of the pandemic when we were just, you know, bumping elbows and giving each other like 10 feet of space when you pass each other in the street. And yeah, I think we all felt that that lack of touch and what it what it does. You know, Dr. Tiffany Field, she's a touch researcher at the University of Miami, she calls it skin hunger, touch hunger, and it's a really real thing and you know as, as sort of research for the book also i did a lot of reading cog cog papers neuroscience papers but also just social science papers about how touch is essential for your biological or your physical health your emotional health to a degree where if you don't get enough touch you know you die sooner or you're more susceptible to illness or anxiety or depression, you know, infants at a certain stage in their life, if you don't get enough touch, you're not developing at the rate that you should be. Uh, so it makes a huge difference, but it's it's very much discounted, I think, in healthcare in general. It's sort of like, it used to be a big part of healthcare. Touch was like integral to that for doctors and nurses and therapists, but, you know, we've evolved to making it very taboo And you really only get touch, I think, from like a family aspect, if you're lucky to have that in your family or in a sexual context. 
So if those things aren't happening in your life, then you're really isolated and there's not a lot of avenues to get touch, which is which is what leads people to to find these professional cuddlers. Right. Yeah, it's making me think of Bob Hope of all people, the you know, the old comedian of your he lived to be a hundred, I wanna say. Or like into his one hundreds and he was a centenarian. And he was obviously this wealthy Hollywood guy. He got a massage every day. Mm. And I don't know why mm-hmm. I know that. I like read about it in some <laughs> Hollywood. You know how you that's read how about he this lived stuff. To and be 100. That's what I'm saying. I was like, it, like I, it stuck with me because I was like, you know what? If you could afford that, because it's like what 150 bucks a day you're burning on massages. But if you're if you're flush and you can have somebody come in and you're in your 90s, give you a massage every day, it's probably good for you. Like so who wouldn't good for benefit? You. Who wouldn't benefit from having a massage every day? Yeah, scientifically proven to be good for you and linked to just like well-being across the board and longevity. Sold. <laughs> I'm going to have to start doing that. <laughs> I have to work that into yeah. my budget, my day. <laughs> yeah, you can be like, science says I need to get a daily massage. Well, when you talk about cuddling, you're obviously, maybe there's a little bit of massage to it, I think. It sort of depends, mm-hmm. but it's mo- it's mostly just like static cuddling in different mm-hmm. positions. And one of the charming things in this book as a recurring motif are these different like cuddle positions that are defined, which I imagine as a cuddler, you might be privy to. They might actually teach you these things so that you can cuddle with people in different ways. Is that right? Not well, not really, because Midas touch, there's no actual like analog for Midas touch in the real world that I really know of. Midas touch being the name of the the cuddle company in the book. Yes, I made up a startup called Midas Touch, and it sort of operates in this like gig economy way where you're linked with clients through an app and you go to a physical location and you go to a designated room and you cuddle them for a designated amount of time. But in the real world, and I started cuddling, you know, over the past year and a half to get into Kathleen's head, there, no, you know, no such level of regulation exists. Um, I'm using a, a site called cuddlecomfort.com, which is maybe a step above Craigslist in terms of sketchiness, where it's just someone messages you and you're totally, you know, you're on your own in terms of setting up what are the parameters, where are you meeting, how long are you cuddling for, and, you know, there's like very loose, you know, structures in place, like you can kind of see they have star ratings, but like, what does that really tell you? Um, so in, in the world of the book, Midas Touch does have like a, a Midas method and it kind of suggests these different cuddle positions and what they might be good for, sort of like written in this corporate, branded, hygienic way. You but made yeah, these up. I made these up, yes. But they're also, you know what, I reference a real book that exists in PDF form online called the Cuddle Sutra, I believe. <laughs> And so when I was like stuck for like, ah, I need like other cuddle positions, I would kind of like look, look to there for inspiration. Wow. So where are you meeting people to cuddle if it's all sort of like off the books and, you know, there's an app? I mean, that seems crazy to me. You could get some weirdo. You're not going to cuddle with somebody in your own house or your own apartment, are you? I did that once. I mean, yeah, it's hard. So there are people who can host, meaning like if you're a cuddler, then you're inviting people into your own home. For the majority of the time, I said I would not host. And I met people, you know, and it's all very touch and go. I will say as like a preface to all this that like, 
99.9% of folks who like messaged requesting a session, like it was like right off the bat, you could tell like this is not someone with like good intentions, you know, the the idea is that this is like platonic cuddling and yes, it's intimate, but it's non-sexual. And, you know, can I, just can I just interrupt? Yeah, I want to interrupt and yeah. just say that touch, touch and go is a good name for a cuddle company. You just said it a minute. Oh, <laughs> I should, I should have thought of that. Yeah. The okay. sequel, the sequel to holding pattern touch and go. <laughs> so, okay. So somebody messages you, you decide to take them on as a client, you meet mm-hmm. them typically where at their at their house or, or their so apartment yeah or... if it's if, if it's available and like within a reasonable distance there are people who are like i can call you a car out to like long island and i'm like i'm not doing that so yeah so if if it's you know close it'll i'll travel to their home uh i've done it in public places like a park hotel room wow yeah you ever feel you ever feel unsafe yeah <laughs> so I will I've learned, you know, again, I'm and there are people out there who've been doing this way longer than I have and can probably speak to best practices better and I and I did reach out to a couple people in the beginning to be like, "Can you help me with this?" and they were very generous. Uh but I did learn to do a lot of just like pre-work framing. So, you know, simple things like, "Did you read my profile and like follow all the steps? Like, can you follow directions and be respectful of that?" let's have a FaceTime and then I get to get a little bit more flavor of who they are and why they're looking for this. And can I trust you? Are you a normal person? You know, things like that. And then I learned also at the beginning of the session to like really do, you know, consent framing, just reiterating, like no touching of like swimsuit areas. Sometimes it's good to practice saying no. So we'll do an exercise where Um, you know, like I'll ask, can I touch your arm? And they'll say no. And that's just like to get you into like the practice of saying no. And sometimes it feels awkward or like you're shutting someone down. Um, But that just gets you more comfortable and like able to really hold your boundaries. Um, I'll start with like breathing exercises or like box breathing. That's when you're like breathing. What's box breathing? You're like breathing in for four counts, holding it in for four counts breathing it out for four counts and holding it empty for four counts. And it just oh, makes right. you like, I don't know, more embodied, more present, relaxed, and we'll sort of like make eye contact and hold hands while we do that. So little things like that can kind of just like ease in and and take away some of the nerves and also like my feeling of like, am I going to be murdered? <laughs> but, you know, but also, you know, I say this to people too, like, it seems preposterous, but like it's not so different from like going on a date with someone and then like having a potential like one night stand, which is like what people do very often. And you're not, I mean, you're cognizant of your safety there too. And that's a whole different conversation, but it's like not so different from like what an average femme would be experiencing if they were dating. Like the, anybody, anybody might kill you. <laughs> Well, they just found this guy out on uh, Long Island today. Did you hear about this? No, no. Some serial killer. This uh, Glio B. I never even heard of it, but there's a guy who killed all these sex workers over the past like 20 years. There were like 10 sex workers in Jersey and Long Island and New York City that disappeared. Turned out it was an architect who had like an office in Manhattan. Whoa. And yeah, he grew up on Long Island. I mean, just, you know, just just broke. I'd never heard of this before, but. I did you know, not there know are, that. Yeah. You know, you ever have, like, do you carry, like, a taser or, like, pepper spray or anything to defend yourself with? You just go in 
I'm just Chill. going. <laughs> I, sh- I should. There was a moment someone brought me empanadas that he had made, and which was so sweet. And I took a bite of one. He was like, oh, you should have it while it's warm. And then I took a bite of it and immediately was like, oh my God, I'm such an idiot. Like, what if this were drugged? I mean, thank goodness it wasn't. It was just fine. He was just being actual very nice. Um, but yeah, things like that you have to definitely think about and be on guard for. And I'll, you know, I'll tell people before, like, I'm doing this. If you don't hear from me in like an hour, I'm, you should I'm call. I'm here. You should this call. Is... This is my location and you should, you know, be concerned. Yeah. But there are in the novel, I mean, there's one relationship in particular, which becomes complicated more nuanced, more human mm-hmm. than the typical, you know, transactional cuddle kind of thing. And there are, I think, moments for Kathleen where there is something like unexpectedly moving about it. I can imagine how that would be the case. Mm-hmm. You know, especially if somebody's grieving or they're just desperately lonely mm-hmm. and they're not there to be pervy or weird. Mm-hmm. They really just need some human contact. Yes. Uh, and to be able to give that to somebody. And maybe there are instances or days. I mean, this is a kind of a, this can be even mood related. You don't have to be in some huge rut or like in some, you know, existential state of loneliness to need this. It could just be like a day where like you could use a hug, you know, mm-hmm. like, so I can imagine being the cuddler where you would go in there and you yourself would feel like you're getting something from it that's medicinal. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, the same, you know, benefits and chemicals and, you know, biological processes that's happening for someone who's being cuddled, like that also happens for the cuddler. And I absolutely do feel, you know, after a session, like kind of renewed and rejuvenated. And there is, yeah, there's then the added layer of if it feels like someone who's really isolated and just doesn't have anyone in their life they could get a hug from, like, being able to provide that is really beautiful. And, you know, you have to acknowledge like this is like a very vulnerable place to be in. And I think it's very brave of them to admit like, I need this and I'm gonna, you know, find it even if it's fairly unconventional. Some of them don't tell anyone about it. So there's like an element of shame, but I really commend them for going out on a limb like that. It's gotta be hard to be like, Listen, guys, I'm sorry. I'm going to be late. I'm going to get cuddled. I mean, it's yeah. not something that's easy to share. Right. And, and what about like hygiene, though? Because like what you might get somebody who's just that they smell like this is where my head goes. I'm like, <laughs> these people like, do you have to have like a conversation? Like, please make sure you're not, you know, that is part of the conversation. The- I, you know, I try to put it in, you know, in our like FaceTime before where we're sort of setting like ground rules. I'll say, you know, please be freshly showered and clean clothes and you know, okay. I'll brush yeah. your teeth, all those things, just, just so everyone's comfortable. Yeah. Yes. That's just, I'm glad. I'm glad yeah. to hear that because I could, I could imagine how it could be uncomfortable if, if that were not the case. And the other thing I was thinking about is like, what about, and this kind of is what Kathleen, mm-hmm. I mean, to some extent, but like, what if you get somebody who you're, you think is like really attractive? <laughs> Does that ever happen? <laughs> Does that ever happen where you're like, whoa, like, like some dreamy guy or girl and you're like suddenly cuddling with them? Like, that's got to be odd. <laughs> that's not happened to me where I've been like, wow, uh. I'm so attracted to this person. But I will say, just go back to your, you know, you brought up that Kathleen in the book sort of has this 
more complicated relationship with one of her cuddle clients. Um, and this idea of like authenticity, I think that starts to bubble up between them of like, what is really going on? Because like, yeah, the, the context of how they see each other is so commodified. It's very transactional. Uh, but what they're doing is so intimate and so human and almost animalistic, like this very basic need that you're meeting and providing. So like, how do you, how do you square those? And I would say in, you know, me setting out to do this myself, I had this preconceived notion of like, you know, it's going to be very much divided. Like it's going to be, I'm platonically cuddling. There's not going to be anything more than that. It's just a service. That's it. And then as I've like gotten more into it and there have been moments of like, oh, that like feels pleasurable. Like that's almost like could be like bordering on the realm of sexual because you're, you know, you might be like caressing and you're, you're, again, your bodies are just pressed together and you're like stroking someone's arm. Like that happens, but it's also, you don't have to act on it and then it just passes. And like, why do we have to rip that out of our body bodily sensations or why do you have to like divorce that like why do we have to condemn that so much like if it's a it's if it's something that you're physi physiologically responding to you don't actually have to like put a morality assignment to it it could just be a thing that happened and then it's and then it's gone and so you can have like pleasure and intimacy and genuine connection and so i'm really starting to question yeah authenticity of relationships in, in my entire life, because there's going to be some sort of element of transaction in, in most of your relationships, whether it's like a power dynamic or a friend you want something from or someone has clout like that. That's true of all our relationships. Yeah. I'm thinking of like, do guys ever get aroused and you're like, oh, I mean, like, does that ever, be, does get weird? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it happens a lot less than you would fear, be fearful of. And you sort of just like, you know, change positions. You just kind of like <laughs> let, you know, let things air out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But um, yeah, and I've heard of other cuddlers who've said like, oh, you know, especially like younger men will like be very respectful and they'll like put a pillow in between you or something. Yeah. Well, that's nice. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Um, it's this book you know, it's kind of critiquing the commodic the commodification, as you just said, of of like intimacy. It's an odd thing to commodify. Mm -hmm. And more broadly speaking, this book, I think and Kathleen might even say this in the book, or you said it in an essay. I always mix it up, you know, when I'm when <laughs> I'm talking when I'm talking with an author who's like written a book and written essays sort of related to the book, I'm like, I don't know which one it was, but makes you think about the commodic the commodification of healthcare period. Mm -hmm. And this is something that has occurred to me across I mean in a, in a variety of contexts, perhaps uh, most often in the context of mental health care. Mm -hmm. I, I bristle so much at this notion that you have to pay for a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. out of pocket and often the good ones don't take health insurance anymore you know they have mm -hmm. enough of a clientele and they have enough of a success like record of uh you know good track record that they're just like you know what i'm done with blue cross if you want to come see me i will help you and i will do a good job of it but it's going to cost you 250 dollars a session or whatever it is they're charging mm -hmm. and 
that, like, I don't begrudge people making a living. I know that they've got to pay the rent too, but it just seems weird to me to be like, man, somebody's in dire straits. They could be on the brink. And you're like, you want me to care? You want me to care about it and help you? 250 a session, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. twice a week. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, man, there's got to be a better way. This should be something that we just have health insurance for. <laughs> like, right? In a saner society. You know, it's not that they don't get paid. It's just that they don't get, they don't get paid like, you know, by the individual. I, I hate this idea that you have to pay somebody to care about you, especially when you're at your lowest point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel that I feel very similarly of healthcare across the board. I mean, in the States, I mean, you see, I mean, this is not a new conversation, but you see other countries, you know, with universal health care and it being free and affordable and accessible. And here, I think we've all heard those horror stories of like, oh, if I didn't have insurance, this like very routine surgery would have been like tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it would have financially ruined me. And that's someone with the, you know, the comfort and privilege of having health insurance. There are so many people who don't and just have to suffer through it or suffer the consequences. And that's, yeah, that's healthcare in, you know, physical healthcare, but also, yeah, mental health, mental healthcare, which again, still is, I think we've come a long way, but it's still very much stigmatized and isn't seen as like as essential, even though it's, literally tearing apart our social fabric yeah and so it's just so inaccessible and the only ways to do it have been these like weird apps i feel like that sort of like again commodify you know you talk about why exactly i'm talking about better help where you know telehealth all these little like band-aids that have popped up and they're like trying to solve a real problem but maybe also creating this other problem of like creating the illusion that an app can solve a larger systemic problem as huge as like healthcare. Um, but yeah, I don't know if it's here, but in New York, there's also things like TIA, which is like a health clinic for women. Um, and it's kind of looks like Midas Touch, the way I've described Midas Touch. Like it's very like that same aesthetic that kind of looks like a startup office with like archways and a certain like earthy palette of colors and like wood. So there's Tia and then there's Tend, which is like a dentist's office that's sort of branded the same way. And all of them are like, yeah, we're easy and we're more accessible, especially if you don't have insurance, I think. Um, but yeah, there you see all the ways in which like the failures of the system have sort of like forced these weird commodified stop gaps. There needs to be a therapy session where you're doing talk therapy while being cuddled. You could combine these things, right? Yeah. You have a cuddler, you have a cuddler happening. Somebody's talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> then, and then you go to the next room, and somebody feeds you psychedelics, which is also a part of this now. Like there's all yes. this integration. I mean, there are things happening in Los Angeles, as I'm sure you can imagine. And I, I know this. It probably started in the Bay, uh, you know, up in Oakland and San Francisco, maybe even before before uh, L.A. But there are so many things happening out in Malibu and the Hollywood Hills where people are taking ayahuasca with their therapist and they're in a circle and they're all staying up all night, puking into buckets and like <laughs> trying to work shit out. I mean, you're just like this, you know, but this is where we're at. This is how desperate I think people are for some relief mm-hmm. and to, to have maybe a, a sense of greater connectivity and, you know, to try to work through shit and mm-hmm. maybe accelerate healing. You know, I, I understand it. I'm a little bit skeptical 
in terms of its effectiveness. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't. I don't want to denigrate. I think it's great if people are doing it safely and trying things out. But I think, like in the long term sense, because I have done some of that, I'm like, I don't know if there's a if there's really a shortcut. Maybe it can be an accelerant, but I don't know if there are shortcuts to wellness. And I think that's what people are so often so hungry for. Like you see it when it comes, I think, to psychedelics and, and psychotherapy. Maybe together, especially together, maybe. If you're mm-hmm. doing talk therapy and psychedelics, that combination could maybe lead you to breakthroughs more quickly. Mm-hmm. But if you're just doing psychedelics, maybe not. But then we see it with like Ozempic, like oh, yeah. people taking this people want a fast forward button and they want to just take, they just want to take a pill. They don't want to do any work. (laughs) You know, that's, that's what I think the impulse is. It's like, wow, if I do ayahuasca, I'm going to come out and I'll be the best me possible. And I'll have like spiritual insight and I will have relieved some of my neuroses and all this kind of stuff. And I just don't know if it works quite that seamlessly. Though maybe, you know, maybe I just haven't taken enough. (laughs) No, I think there's like absolutely this like focus on optimization and efficiency. But that's that's what we've taught ourselves. We've like worked ourselves into this like frenzy of I have to everything needs to be frictionless. Everything needs to be efficient. I need, you know, the four day. What is it? The four hour work week, like all of that. It's like so much a part of our culture to like do things quickly but that's just not, that's how, that's, you know, that's not how things work. And that's like, I think what has gotten us into this mess to begin with in you know, so many parts of our lives. Yeah. Hearing you say that, it makes me think of another aspect of your book, which is very, to me, it's very the Bay. I mean, it's, it's, it's American culture, but it's especially the Bay and you are critiquing like this optimization culture and that sort of tech bro venture capital you know, life hacking, biohacking culture that I think, you know, might have its origins there. Maybe it's certainly California, it seems like, but maybe yeah. the Bay Area. But there is something about that stuff, which is both alluring, if I'm being honest, you know, like you and I both have paid en- enough attention to it to be fluent in it to some degree, right? Mm-hmm. But it also makes me recoil and it feels sad. There's mm-hmm. a sadness, there's a sadness inside of this self-optimization culture mm-hmm. that I don't know if I've ever been able to fully define, but it makes me, and it also makes me a little bit angry. It's like, ugh, this is just gross. Like to constantly be trying to optimize the self and to better oneself. I think where I, I think part of it for me is like, it's all about getting ahead. It's not about actually being happier. Mm-hmm. It's about getting rich. <laughs> like at the bottom, it's about like, I'm going to dominate. I'm going to create a business that I only have to tend to four hours a week so that I can travel South America and learn how to do the tango. I mean, I've read the four hour work week, so I know. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. What, what, oh, yeah. I know what he's selling. I know what he's selling. You yeah. know, and it's, it's alluring. It's like, wow, I'm going to create, you know, I'm going to sell like, what, what, how did he do it? He, he sold like pills, you know, that are like, or supplements, you know, mm-hmm. where it's like, I'm going to sell supplements to people who want to optimize and I'm only, I'm going to have like a virtual assistant in Bangalore who's going to work while I'm sleeping. And you know, it's like, yeah. then you try to actually do it. And I don't know, I tried to do it for like a minute after I finished the book. Cause you get all wound up. You're like, Oh my God, I didn't realize you could do this. And then you try and you're like, this is actually close to impossible. To yeah. Do, and it's know. like, yeah, to what end? I guess, yeah, a lot of it is just like capitalistic 
you know, greed, you know, to that end. But also I'm thinking now back to your like ayahuasca example, shortcut to like wellness, if that like the goal there is wellness. I think also what it does too is it just like fractures your identity into this like very discreet thing. Like ayahuasca has such a like a powerful tradition and it's part of this like much bigger, more complex culture. And then we're just like cherry picking that and being like, okay, I'm going to do this thing and it's going to make me better. But then it like cuts you away from like all the other things that need to be happening in your understanding of yourself in the world and probably a connection to nature that you're just like totally disregarding. Um, and then you, and then you sell it back to people. It's so, yeah. And then I think, yeah, even like the four hour work week thing too, it does that. Like it hyper focuses you on like this one element of being so, so called better, but at what cost, right? It probably cuts you off from a lot of good people and good experiences. I mean, I was talking to my friend Al McElroy, who's a writer about this, you know, they were my interlocutor interlocutor during one of my events we're talking about yeah this fascination of optimizing point a to point b and they were saying like we know what point b is b is death like why are we trying to like hurdle towards it um and sort of like sanitizing all the stuff of 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 life on the way there and also trying to beat death this is just another thing that the tech bros want to optimize it's like i'm going to be a centenarian like there was just this story running around on social media about this guy I think he founded Braintree, if I'm remembering it right. He cashed out for like $800 million. So he's got nothing but money and time. He takes like 50 supplements a day, and he's, he claims that he's got his body, which is like he's 47 or something, like that he's as fit as his 18-year-old son. And he eats, all of his, he eats all of his meals by 11 a.m. He has dinner at 11 a.m. No. Do you know what I'm saying? And it's like I just want to throw my phone across the room like to shatter a window it's like these people are miserable are they not and it's a certain kind of person who's like i call them achievement robots they're like really good at achieving and getting and doing and you know and like it's never enough Mm -hmm. it's it's like it's never enough and i think what like they think it's making i think the the idea is like you're going to inspire others to like reach for the stars or whatever makes me anxious Mm mm-hmm you know what I'm saying? It's like, I don't have that feeling. I see this and I'm just like, mm-hmm. something ain't right. And yeah. there's nothing wrong with taking good care of yourself. Like, I, you know, it's good to take care of yourself and to try to be healthy and stay active into your older age. Like, I'm all for that. But like, the extremes of it. Mm-hmm. I, I guess maybe we need people to be these sort of lab rats to try to figure out what works. But it just seems like it's often dudes. <laughs> yeah. Right? Right. It's yes. usually dudes. It's, well, I don't know if I've ever seen a woman who's like, I, I, I mean, maybe for different reasons or something, but like self-optimization and like, seems to be a very like guy thing. Like I'm reading Seneca. I'm a stoic. And like, it's like, Oh God, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It just it's kind of like, terrifying. And you must've seen a lot of that in, in the Bay, right? Yeah. I mean, there's also like all these experiments with like anti-aging technology happening um, and actually, so I'm working on a new manuscript, and it's about these AI-enabled clones who live in a model home, but they're essentially, you know, bred to be, like, lab rats for anti-aging technology. So they're, like, you know, they've been, like, sort of, like, 
biotechnically enhanced and you know they've used like CRISPR gene editing to like make them super healthy and it's all so like billionaires at some point can like use that technology and, and extend themselves so it's it's happening and it's yeah it's terrifying I think it's very divorced from the natural order of things and maybe like the cynic in me is like I know we're not going to get that far in this experiment because our environment is collapsing <laughs> so Right, right. You know, it's like kind of like, okay, we're going to, you know, run or dart our way to the very end, to the fiery end. I guess so. I mean, I see these pictures. There's this picture online of Mark Zuckerberg. He's like doing like, you know, Brazilian jujitsu practice or whatever it is. It's some sort of fighting. Like maybe it's Oh, yeah. He's MMA. getting ready for his cage fight with Elon Musk. <laughs> And he's like, and he's like sort of ripped, you know, he's like, he's gotten like really fit. And then like Jeff Bezos, it looks like a Marvel comics villain. Now he used to be like a schlubby nerd in his garage. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, there's something, yeah, something deeply weird. Yeah. It's weird. And your book speaks to it. And I think, you know, it's not speaking to it in a direct way. It's just, I think it's more like Kathleen is reacting to these forces that are all around her in her environment in the Bay area. And, uh, it's just sort of in the air, like not just there, but maybe especially there because of the number of people and the fact that it's just kind of like, it's like a self experimentation zone, sort of like Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that what this book is a lot about too, is about identity, her trying to sort herself out, which I think I've kind of touched on a little bit, but one of the things that I want to mention about this book in terms of its plotting, which I think is uh, really a, uh, a shrewd choice creatively and kind of a good, almost like a rom-com setup. I mean, this is not a romantic comedy, but it does have com- some comedic bent to it. Is just the fact that we have Kathleen and then her mother, Marissa, and her mother is about to get married. Mm-hmm. She's in her 50s. She's like working out, you know, for her wedding. She's getting super fit. Kathleen is at a sort of like crossroads in her young life. Her boyfriend has dumped her. She doesn't know what she wants. Does she go back to graduate school? And then she's got to sit there and basically be her mother's maid of honor. I mean, she does have to be her mother's Mm -hmm. maid of honor and sort of plan a bachelorette party and do all this stuff. That's a setup that I have not seen. (laughs) <laughs> that was like that. I feel like that's a good setup. Like mom Thank is getting you. remarried. Yeah. Mom is getting remarried and daughter in her twenties is like, what the fuck do I do with my life? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And so like, I don't know, that's kind of the driver of the narrative. And I think I admire it because I'm like, oh yeah, that's good because there's a time, there's a time frame. Uh, there are different kind of ceremonial steps that go along with putting a wedding together, like the bachelorette party and going out and looking at bridal dresses, like mm-hmm. sort of like a built-in plot in a way, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly how I was thinking of it. I thought, you know, it's another manifestation of how Kathleen has felt like she's always had to be the caretaker and like sort of the adult in the relationship. And she thinks, you know, my life's falling apart. I'll at least get to go home and my mom will take care of me. And like, that's not so like her mom is, you know, the Silicon Valleyfied Bridezilla. She's not really a Bridezilla, but you know, she has She's to be Bridezilla. Close. Bridezilla adjacent. I mean, Bridezilla somewhere adjacent. In there. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, it's very fun to play with this. Yeah, the wedding trope and have it little be have it be a little bit inverted, but also have the the scaffolding of like, okay, 
you know, I've never planned a wedding, but I went to like, you know, Martha Stewart.com was like, okay, what are the, what are the steps in this timeline? And I kind of just picked, okay, that could be a really interesting scene. So you already have this like very intense high stakes scaffolding in place. And then you can just like throw the characters in there and have them sort things out through the guise of sorting out this wedding. So, I mean, I don't want to spoil it, but it does. I, I do feel like Kathleen comes to some conclusions about intimacy and how she wants to be in the world and how she wants to relate to people that I found to be like, there's a, there's some wisdom to it, like maybe hard one, you know, she's got to go through the, uh, what's the, you know, she's got to be sort of adrift for a while, mm-hmm. cuddling people and hanging out with her friends who like, you know, what are they, they have a rat that's like an animal influencer, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that's that's another layer of complication. I mean, there are different subplots, but she's got friends. One, like her ex-boyfriend is now dating her best friend. It's cool. This is like going back to like high school and college and stuff, but uh, it definitely adds some psychological complication to her situation. Right. It's like, it's cool, but is it really cool? (laughs) It's a little weird. You know, it's got to be a little weird. And especially if you're the person who's just gotten dumped and you're sort of like single and not knowing what to do. And then you're seeing your ex with your best friend and they're super happy. Then it's going to be emotionally Mm -hmm. complicated. Yeah. Yeah. So there's all of that happening. And I, uh, I commend you. You were named a 535. Is that right? A 535? honoree yeah, like how does that ha- how does that even happen it was such a surprise uh i don't know really i <laughs> just got a call one day um i was at a cafe i think you know working on something or other and i never pick up calls i don't know but i picked this one up because i was expecting groceries a grocery delivery oh. i was like oh maybe my grocery person is here but no it was ruth dickey um the executive director of the you know, the National Book Foundation. And uh, yeah, she told me this was happening. And I found that Kirsten Valdis Quaid had selected it, uh, which is a huge honor also. I so admire her. And yeah, it was just incredible. Just didn't think that, yeah. Knew of it, you know, like thought, wow, that'd be so cool if that happened, but like really didn't see it in, in the realm of possibility. So that's been incredible. Well, good for you. And you said you, earlier you're working on a book about the Irvine Company, but you're also working on a book about AI. Are those the same book? Yeah. So in the in this oh. world, the Irvine Company has sort of expanded. There, it's like this very expansive company that you know is a little bit like Amazon in the way that it like you know they've taken over grocery stores to to web hosting and all of that. So the Irvine Company in this book is a a development company that also has, you know, subsumed like a technology company that works in biotechnology. So they are the like sort of parent company of this company that makes these models. Um, I'm calling them models because they live in a model home and part of their assignment is also to sell these model homes in this tract of land that Irvine Company owns. Um, What's what's the company called in the book? Is it called the Irvine Company or it's called called, something else? It's called Jiaxiang company um which translates to like like sweet home <laughs> okay creepy, <laughs> <So> creepy. <laughs> how far along are, are you with this book oh it's so early it's like less than ten thousand words 
Oh, okay. Yeah. So early stages. Early stages. Well, I think it's, I mean, as a premise, I'm all in. I think that sounds fantastic. And I hope you can work just for, my, you know, if for no other reason than just to delight me, if you could work the Irvine spectrum into the uh, Ooh, plot. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that would be a fun Easter egg. I'm sure there's a way. Yeah. Well, I wish you well on your next book, on your cuddling career. Is that still going or is it over? Is that, was it? It's still happening. I've gotten, gotten very busy, so it's happening less. Uh, but I hope to, yeah, I hope to continue it. And I also wish you well on your four-hour workweek business, which we haven't gotten to discuss. I'm sure you're selling supplements on the side and yeah, that's, building your empire. All, <laughs> this is all a front for me to sell my get, you know, optimizing scheme. Uh, this protein shake with, uh, what is it? Ginkgo, whatever, biloba. It's yeah. going to make your brain, your brain function is going to go through the roof. Right. You will You'll remember things three that books you didn't even once. realize you'd. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Well, I, uh, I love talking with you. Thank you so much for making the time. Congratulations on Holding Pattern. Best of luck on, we'll call it the Irvine Company book. Thank you so much, Brad. This has been so amazing. All right, folks, there we have it. That was my conversation with Jenny Shia. Her debut novel is called Holding Pattern, available now from Riverhead Books. You can find her on the internet at jennyshiawrites.com. You can also track her down on social media, Twitter and Instagram. Once again, the book is called Holding Pattern. Go get your copy right away. It's a great read. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. You can support the Other People Podcast. Help keep it going over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to get some other people gear, some apparel, a t-shirt, a sweatshirt. You can do so at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. It is free. It's once a week. Sign up at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. If you have a couple of minutes, I would appreciate it if you would rate this podcast wherever you listen. It helps new listeners find the show. And if you would like to email me, the address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. Finally, a quick plug for my latest novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I will read it to you. One more time, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Okay, so coming up on Friday, there will be a new flashback episode. I will dig into the archives and share with you a cut from a vintage other people episode and then coming up on sunday i will be in conversation with ruth matievsky she has a debut novel out called all night pharmacy i had a great time talking with her and i'm excited to share that one with you on sunday so stay tuned